This is Untimely Reflections, a series of conversations with some of my friends, streamed here through the Nietzsche podcast. Okay, so I'll start with this in case we cut it uh, before we get back, because uh, the, the art stuff isn't going anywhere, right? Um, I mean, we can bring it up. I mean, we'll we'll just talk about yeah. Uh, okay, we, so what were we saying a second? So you know, I said you 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 did take a moment. Uh, you you were vulnerable in your expression there, where you said you know you you can you, you thought about it in terms of your life and that sort of thing, and you know you'd mentioned uh, you studied Zen. Uh, did you ever read Dogen, Master Dogen? A little bit. Um, okay. So the Dogen, I read a little bit of Shobo Ginzo, and there was one passage in particular. Okay, let's um, see. That, that's it. That was, um, gosh, I'm trying to remember. It's where um, I don't remember the name of the figure. Actually, I, this is so bad because I used to know the names of all these Zen masters. Oh, sure. Yeah, maybe, but if you've been maybe there's something studies. really cool and Zen about the fact that I've forgotten most of these things in Zen that were really important at one point. But uh, there was a master who was fanning himself, and the student asked, like, if the wind is ever present, uh, why do you need the fan? basically. And it's sort of a, um, the master's basically like, because yeah, the wind is everywhere, but unless I actively fan myself, I'm not getting any wind. It's not being put to use. And it was basically. Oh, well, it captures the ethos, right? Well, it It, unraveled this mystery. I understood in that moment why um, Soto Zen, like I I look at the history of religions and ideologies, et cetera, Mm -hmm. somewhat not, I'm not a big fan of Hegel, but I'll use the term dialectically, where you see how certain contradictions emerge, like you have one explanation, and then that inevitably creates a contradiction down the line, where people, um, because that's just the nature of language. um, And that's why they're, that's why they're silent, right? That's why they prefer silence. But they they understand that everything they say is just gonna, like, that's true. The Zen master understands that most anything they can say to a student is most likely just going to mislead them. It's a very tricky space to occupy in terms of at least their value system and their teaching. For like sure. for, to Western, I mean, because look, to a Westerner, uh, to looking outside, looking in, it's, it's otherwise incomprehensible because it's so, you know, I guess if we have a long tradition of running our mouths, you know, they have a long tradition of keeping them shut. Well, that, and it's I, illustrated in a lot of their myths and their stories and their Right. But I was just going to say, as much as they say that, they also wrote so much shit. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the so Shobo Genzo itself. Um, and that, so I don't know how good they were at actually following their own advice. And I think that might just be like a human. Well, the story, well, the stories always come back around to that. Like if you, if you remember the one from uh, the collection of stone and sand about the student burning the master's book, where he's like, you know, my master's had this book. This, this was a return to the mean, right? This was the student calling the master who was out of line by even keeping the book and so when the when the master handed the student the book because the, the master realized the student had reached enlightenment as far as zen's concerned uh the student uh demonstrated it by burning the book yes. and it's, it's such a fantastic illustration of you know the value i believe system. that was uh munan uh, so i do actually remember one of the one of the, yeah, see, the it's funny thing about memory you know nietzsche talks about this brings up something fascinating because when it comes to Okay, let me let me just ask you this: Like, what do you make of Nietzsche's uh, talking and framing of forgetfulness? Because I don't remember how you know in the whole course of his works, I don't think he gives a lot of attention to it per se. There's but a little he, bit in he says some definitive things about it that 
maybe it speaks to the notion that we're mythological. Like we're almost like we have, like we, we exist to forget or we evolved to forget or we're not supposed to remember almost. Like it's not good when we remember because then we hold grudges or, you know, we start heading in weird directions. Like our, our or maybe it's that, maybe that memory made us, shaped us into what we are in the first place because we came to what was once a spontaneous animal expression became art. I guess, uh, like, have you ever seen the puffer fish who make those uh, mandalas uh, under oh, underwater? No. Yeah. So to attract mates, they design mandalas in the sand out of shells and, and the sand itself. So it's like, there it is in nature, right? Uh, life is an aesthetic phenomenon. Interesting. Yeah. So that, I think that you're onto something like that is two things you mentioned with memory of uh, what is it? You could hold grudges or you could go off in weird directions, which I assume you mean like ideological well, directions because Nietzsche okay. basically says consciousness as yeah. errors are the, some of the worst blunders that life can make because they're not checked by instinct or, or the way oh that... no no check it out no that's exactly you i just listened to one of your podcasts where you just uh, i think you brought up um a quotation from him where it was something along the lines of like it was it that the logic and rationality or irrationality could be the difference of someone living or dying and then maybe it was just as well that they could have lived like it's not necessarily written stone or something i i, I can't remember consciousness can have all sorts of like failures and um I, I guess what he was saying was that um their their judgments might have been maybe that there were other ways of um apprehending judgments about the world around us but um or, or that produced better true more true um interpretations you might say um in in like an objective sense but if they perished even if they're perceptions were truer that that kind of reveals something to you uh, it, it's something Nietzsche said in um the dawn where he has an aphorism that's really simple where he says truth requires power um that what basically that's a more refined perception of truth because um it's the truth the truth claims oh. that somebody makes that are survivable I, I have I happen to have it open right before check it out I happen to have that open right before me you want me to read it sure all right uh, cause it, Dawn is actually, uh, I'll, let me say this because you, you made some reference that, uh, you know, I know you had some of the aphorisms, I think, uh, from your recent work and it's actually one of my favorites because I think he, he expresses a lot of personal things in this one, as well as, um, he pulls the cover on himself in a lot of it. Uh, mm. truth requires power or quote, truth requires power. Truth in itself is no power at all, in spite of all that flattering rationalists are in the habit of saying to the contrary. Truth, truth must either attract power to its side or else side with power, for otherwise it will perish again and again. This has already been sufficiently demonstrated and more than sufficiently, end quote. Dude, I love that whenever he answers, whenever he punctuates a statement with like something exclamation. like that. Yeah, an exclamation mark and that he's like, and it's actually been more than sufficiently proved, sort of like, hey, come on, catch up to yes. truth, truth requiring oh, power here. Yes. And then and then and that also reminds me a lot of what he was saying of what it was arising in Europe at his time when he was saying it's more than worth a demonstration of these bad ideas to prove to you guys that it's not gonna work. <laughs> and then, you know, here we are 120 years later, and it's like, man, they're still they're like to me, it's like they're still mucking about in like no man's land like they're still playing in the afterbirth of like history's 
bad philosophy. It's like, what are you guys doing <laughs> over there? You know, it's, it's really gross. That's you just said an aphorism right there spontaneously that we're all playing in the afterbirth of history's bad philosophy. That's a kind yeah. Of well, I mean, you see it, the, 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 I guess, okay. This reminds back to the postmodernists. We were talking about them earlier. Uh, it's, it winds up being a lot of clever tail chasing and it's like, okay, you've coined, uh, who actually coined the term dustbin of history? I don't know, actually. You know, That's, it emerged. It's, it's such in a that. cliche now that I don't even think about that. Yeah, neither, neither do I. Other than, well, I guess my my own subversion of the cliche was to be like the joke is, you know, for anyone who wants to like gets lost in that, it's like, well, the joke of it is that they put you there. You allowed that to happen, whether you realize that or not. Like, if you actually follow that and take it seriously, you know, or if you give any credence to it. Could you could you uh, expand on that a little bit of how how you... I mean, okay. This gets into, okay, uh, let's talk about philosophy as art and um, and also life as an aesthetic ideal. Okay. All right, it puts us back in that territory, I think. Okay, mm -hmm. well, so I, well, I was just wondering like kind of where you were going with that of, because the dustbin of history, um, how do I put it? That, I mean, that kind of relates to what we were talking about with memory and, 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 and forgetting. Um, just a second ago only on like that's on a world historical level right rather than the the individual level well yeah i guess we could question okay uh this gets into nietzsche's philosophy too because a lot of it is predicated on the notion that like we remember great people we remember great men we don't remember masses right i guess you know i guess technically we do because they become forces of history themselves but right. it's not like the mass doesn't have like it, it's hard to point to it's like okay well what's noble about this creature and it it's like well it's got it, a will to power a good story for the masses they're not they're not yeah it's interesting it's like the masses are like almost in terms of what they can do in terms of world historical forces it, uh, well, what about spartacus of, let's of say like a nietzsche yeah it's like that one individual spartacus is like at least equal to the uprising that he created yes right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's this actually. Uh, right. Uh, he was you'd say he was we remember him because the power that he represented was as large. I think you were about to say this, basically. Right. Yes. It, yeah. it was as large as the mass. Yeah. Uh, yeah the mass because uh, he that it was a reflection of him almost. That's that was you could say Spartacus's art. It's like, well, what do you contribute? It's like, well, this story uh, and it was his life. He lived it. Right. Yeah, you could say in that regard, he was. Uh, his own philosopher because mm. it's you know and, and along with his generals like Crixius and I don't remember the rest of their name uh, a lot of their other names but you know uh, it's quite the story well that and that's what um, I think what, what Nietzsche was talking about in genealogy of morals where he talks about how um, it, this is sort of paraphrasing but that the way states are formed is from the what he calls the artist's violence and um it's interesting because, um, <laughs> yes, you know, he's 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 basically saying that the the state or that a a nation or a a society, really, in the broadest sense, is formed through a sort of art, art the artistic decision of the the great people who um, inevitably committed violence. You know, because states are formed out of war, at least on the anthropological right. level. That seems to be obvious that states sort of existed it's like an evolutionary arms race right um, right on oh, the intra-species sure. level that uh ho however and it, it's it's your ability for collective action and collective um 
coordinated, um, what would you say, uh, you know, the ability to bring force to bear in a coordinated collective way. And that's the kind of thing that, yeah, it does require as much as I, like as somebody who in my sort of background, I, I come out of a lot of leftist thought. So you tend on the left to emphasize like all of the work that's done by the functionaries in the rank and file. That's sure. what props up everything. But then you realize when you really study like sociology that there are just like these sociological laws and that people require these like things like organizing moral principles. They right. require things like a concept of like they have to have a rationalization for why the hierarchy they're in is justified. If they need to participate beat. in it. Right. They or, need a drumbeat like, and, and, and a bonfire. They have to know that the values that they believe in and that all of them believe in are what's going to allow them to progress at hierarchy. Um, you need just all these things to get like a functional, um, you know, cooperative group of humans going. And those are all things that don't, um, that are sort of, they emanate from like an ideological center or you, where you have, those are fostered in some way artistically or philosophically. And like those, we could talk about how th those things could be at odds as well, but it's, it's really in the sense of, um, you know, every, this happens even in modern times, like every regime has its sort of art. Um, we could call it right. propaganda, but like, you know, uh, Zheng Sheng's revolutionary plays. I learned about that in Adam Curtis's new documentary. Mao's wife put on these, like, she, <laughs> she redid all these traditional Chinese operas. Uh, of and course, she made did. them about the about the revolutionary people like rising up. Uh, See, it's a re it's a remake. See, that's a remake, right? Yes. Like they're trying, they're doing it right now. And, and, and you can see it reflected in our, in our culture, <laughs> yes. right? It's like, well, I guess you could say it's a, cr it's a cruder, like, um, to me, it's like a cruder kind of take of that. Right, because it's driven by market forces and not by like a coherent ideological project. Yes. There is a there is an ideology behind it, but it's right. Well, they were they were relaying, uh, you know, the way they gutted uh, the way Maoist China, right? The way they gutted the culture and that, you know, because to, to gut a culture is to gut a people uh, the way they did that. And then the way they tried to reassert, you know, the new values because um, they learned a lot from the Western world. Um, you know, I don't think people realize that even like a country like Japan, that they, you know, it was still pretty feudal and medieval up until about, you know, late 18, uh, mid 1870s, I think. Mm -hmm. And then by the time the Western world knocked on their door and they saw that the world had battleships, they were right. like, we want some of that. And then, you know, within 50 years, they were fully industrialized. And then, you know, by then you're in uh, World War II territory. And it's like, well, look at what is set in motion without a single thought. Right. You know, it's well, crazy to thing, see on the long take of uh, history. Uh, sorry, I guess we're on a bit of a tangent here, but. Oh, it's it's fine. Uh, well, I was just going to say, I mean, it's all kind of related in a way. Um, but what, what came to mind when you were talking about, yeah, the Chinese were shaping their culture, is there was, of course, the Cultural Revolution. But even before that, so I had this book by this guy, John Blofeld, and he's mostly known. It's funny that this takes us back to Zen. So maybe I, maybe we'll leave the stuff of us talking about Zen. In the episode. Yeah, no, I think I, I feel um, like you might as well just start leave it from the jump. Um, right. Um, but um, so John Blofeld's really well known because he translated Wangbo, which is like Wangbo is not really a significant Zen master, but basically the record of his teaching is like one of the most powerful books in Zen. It, it powerful, I, I mean, in the very literal sense, like artistically. People read it and they 
it it has that that quality that maybe a book by Nietzsche would have, right? Where it just like resonates sure. with people. Um, but anyway, John Blofeld was an English guy, um, you know, obviously a translator, but he spent a lot of time in China. And he wrote a book called, um, what is it called? Bodhisattva of Compassion, which is about uh, Guanyin, which is probably the most widely worshiped female deity in the world um, that exists today. Um, but basically in the course of writing that book where he's trying to sort of flesh out how this figure emerged in Chinese society, what he talks a lot about is when the red wave hit Chinese culture and that he was there in China before um, the Maoists took over everything and he was there after. And he basically writes with this just tragic sense throughout the book of how there were all these beautiful, you know, golden buddhas and all these reliquaries and all these beautiful temples and these things that were just so old like that they just harkened back grave to the too. time that's a, yeah. that's a big one that, that most everyone knows oh right. real quick interesting thing I, I mentioned it to you before but um you know there's all sorts of well first off there's all sorts of weird articles like check this one out. i saw this one and it makes you wonder. Uh, it was it was an article about a Twitter struggle session between Jackie Chan and some representative of the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> and then my question is like, why is he, this even being? Why is this even on the front page of an American media website? Mm-hmm. You know, like what? First off, what is that? I'm not too, I'm not too certain. But it was him saying that he was expressing interest in joining. You know, the, the CCP and the, the CCP representative was like. You know, no, nope, you're not pure enough. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, yeah. It's I mean, like, Jackie why Chan, is he here? Jackie Chan, you know, he's been corrupting himself with Western influence for. Oh yeah, you know, it's um, probably the reasoning. Like, because right. they're, I mean, they're super nationalistic more than anything. It's it's kind of funny that that's where all the like communist regimes mostly ended up was just becoming these like hyper nationalistic. Oh, okay. Um, well, let me ask you this real quick. So. uh because this this is like it the crux of large mass movements predicated on like an ideology like communism or fascism you know when people concern themselves with their characterization of left and right it boggles my mind the way they frame it because to me like okay so i've heard i've heard you know this, this is like shit from American liberals. Like though, though they talk about stuff like fascism and it's like, it's almost like what's, what's upsetting to them. Isn't the fact that like, Oh, that these bean counters figured out how to, you know, put humans on cattle cars at a, on an industrial scale to clean up their problems to their minds. Right. Like that when they talk about that sort of stuff, it seems like they're more offended that it was considered conservative, that they consider it conservative and right wing. than they're actually upset with the actions of the people. And it betrays like a, 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 you know, that it's, it's like, okay, so to you, well, if it's you the remo- race thing too. It's, I was going to say, no, it really bothers people. I think if you remove it. the hereditary element, it seems to me that, cause it's like, okay, enemies come in two varieties. It's hereditary and ideological. And it's like, okay, so if you try and scrub the hereditary in the modern age and you just stick with the ideological, now it's okay. Like not now, now violence is right. always justified, right? This right, gets right. back to, or I guess, um, you know, this is kind of what uh, Orwell talks about in his essay, um, Politics in the English Language, which, you know, I, I can't recommend enough to any modern people, whether they're writers or otherwise, uh, especially right. to inoculate to some of the, I mean, you know, look, I guess my assumption is that most of your listeners, like, they see through this stuff. Um, I, 
I you know what I mean? Think yeah. Well, it's in that essay where Orwell says that fascist is now a word that just means something that oh, we don't yeah. like or that we're afraid of or that's bad. And that's yeah, and that was that very little... sixty or seventy years ago. Like right. he was saying well, that, and if if that was an observation from back then, and and, and I and I've seen the same thing because here's my question for you: even if you take a mass ideological movement, uh, you know, whatever new value system or morality or uh, thing you're trying to codify. And even if you predicate it on old ideals, yet you take that society off its rails into some completely unheard of or new direction, is that can that ever be said to be conservative? Because to me, mm-hmm. that always looks to be radically liberal. So when Mao gutted his country, even though we associate communism with leftism or liberalism to a certain degree, you know what I mean? Like the, the right. thought process emerges from this notion of, you know, we the masses in our in our pity, you know, it's like enough pity to kill tens of millions of people. See, I think um, this is where the whole like political spectrum just breaks down for me, though, because yes, that's on, what, this is what level, I was getting to. It, um, on some level, it's not seems absurd by the time you know. Because what's the matter? What you're called? Well, you could point. say it's like um, what would you say? Um, I don't want to call it progressivism, but it's not. Really like, <laughs> I don't say liberal. It's like, but pro- it's like, pro- progressive it's, mental illness. Well, the opposite of like romanticism, right? Is romanticism? Oh, is kind of, yeah. Like, um, which oh, I see that something like you might say would be like the ideology of like French royalists or monarchists during, um, you know, leading up to the French revolution. Oh yeah. It was a bad idea for them. (laughs) Right. For sure. But it's like, that's not really what none none of them were like, let's try this new thing for society. It's all about returning to old ways. The thing is though, they still had some connection to like the, the, the ancient regime is not that far, um, away from them or in, in the case of you know leading up to the french revolution is still there um and there's just that's what conservatism is is actually preserving the status quo yes right? but i think once that makes like, me think of the apollinian right like this well, is these are their modern incarnations kind of of well, or it's, it's at least one way to frame it like one of the things about nazism is it is romanticism in a way because they oh yeah idealize like okay there were these german absolutely these strong german pagans or whatever but it is sort of like okay Teutonic warriors lived like a thousand years ago. So whatever return to that way of life you're, oh, you're, yeah, you're proposing happen, is, yeah. is actually your fantasy of projecting what you are obsessed with onto them. Yes. And, and that's why- He's rem- remaking the world anew, right? They were trying. Right. And, and likewise, though, what we just talked about with China, though, they also involves a project in communism of like reinventing the past and- um, yeah. But yeah, and 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 yeah, it is a little unnerving how people don't consider like the like yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not going to come out again against like condemning you know racially motivated genocide, but it reminds me of um, you know like when the refugees from North Vietnam um, were like stranded in like the South China Sea, and a lot of leftists basically were like, well, fuck them because they um, you know they supported the South Vietnamese and the United States, which is an imperialist power. And there was widespread like people like uh, Jane Fonda basically saying you shouldn't help those people, even though these are just like civilians who had the wrong politics, who were basically just like dying in the ocean, like starving and getting preyed on by pirates and all that kind of thing. And, um, you know, Bernard Kushner, who was like one of the guys who founded Doctors Without Borders or Médecins Sans Frontier, basically said there's no leftist and rightist suffering. Um, And so like, I don't know, that's kind of why I say it's like the, the, when you get into the, like these regimes that like kill millions of people and like yeah, it's like, radically well, it doesn't matter society, what you call them. I don't. I, it, it doesn't. Breaks down for me. It's like um, it's, yeah. it's something almost like um, I don't know. I 
to me, what's more interesting than the, the political ideology is sort of like the, the psychology and yes. the... Um, naturally, well, naturally, because you go, well, what the hell is happening? And who's, you question who's really pulling the strings. And then, you know, there's this notion that uh, you could question, okay, so when, when the leadership to such mass movements arises or asserts itself, you know, um, you could, the, the question that I always ask is, you know, are they actually, you know, if the people and the masses themselves can't come up with the vision and these other people are proposing the vision, then, you know, are they do, saying or doing anything beyond what these people want to hear is, you know, what, I guess I'm questioning the art of that because mm -hmm. if, if, if philosophy and um, all of this is rooted in uh, a shaping of mankind, because- you know, Carl Jung said something interesting about this because so it's come out like very recently like past couple of years because uh, some people threw around the idea that Carl Jung was like pro maybe a little pro-nazi but it's actually come out that he was feeding intelligence to the OSS about like Hitler's mental state and he was like psychoanalyzing it basically and he he called him like he was like he's basically like a shamanic like witch doctor who is like yeah tapping that's, into, that's pretty good he said yeah he's like uh, saying that's pretty, he's no, that's pretty good analysis He's tapped into this vein of, of sentiment within the people and they're like sort of mutually enhancing each other or, or something like that. That he's sort of like this emergent property of the of the, the psyche of Germany in some sense. Right. Oh, this gets into something important because I guess in these days, like you're not like even allowed shadow, to basically. mention it. Uh, it's a, to me, it's, I, I question... Um, you know, I guess it's also not questioned because people like you see that I can you can see that a lot of people recognize that there are elements to what's going on right now, not just in America, but at the world at large that resemble other things in history. And I guess there's always a question of it hasn't changed that. How does any nation's uh, national and racial profile, uh, of, you know, in, in terms of analysis and uh you, you could even say criminology, let's say, uh, how, how does that affect their psyche? And how does that affect either their old visions or their new visions? You know, if we're, whether we're retelling a story from the past or, by the way, we still got, we're still going to get back to Dogen eventually. Um, right. I haven't, I haven't forgotten that one yet. Yeah. Well, I would just, maybe I will before the end. That's what's going on in America now actually is I think a battle between two I would say they're both kind of pathological, but two yes. different pathological readings of history. They're actually, yes. there's the, so there was the 1619 project and then the 1776 project, oh. which was uh, 1619 project was the thing put out by some major news publication, basically saying the central thing in American history has been slavery. A lot See, of his Plato, Plato would disagree, right? He says, you know, basically it's like, you can't raise a nation on, trauma and violence because it's not good art it's going to fill their head with bad things this is him saying art is dangerous right so if this is a philosophy that's emerged to shape the minds of the children oh, okay you're saying yeah this is not going to work going forward to create like no no it's more it, we're still right. a vengeance against man that's, then, that's how then i you see had, it. like the 1776 project which was like the trump administration put out which was basically oh see now now we're back to revolution right it's, it's right. flat well, well, it was back to like, basically America was the greatest country that uh, ever existed or all the ways in which we were deficient. Well, it's a pretty we simple read. Well, but I mean, that it, it, those two things though, the fact that there was Both a, of them, yeah. a, a call and a response, 
of like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. I create this. Oh, Naturally, I will create a mirror image that is the opposite pathology. Uh, both right. of which are completely unable. Oh, like, it's the summoning of a demon at that point. Grappling with the nuances of um, reality, and and but they're both kind of artistic in a way. I mean, propaganda is is an art. Um, yes. It's basically because you're making artistic decisions about what to leave out, what to keep in, um, just in the way that like essay writing or giving oratory is always an art. Um, you're trying to you're trying to hit on the emotions, and so that's what both of those were sort of like representing and trying to do. They're both like trying to reevaluate like what America is basically, and that's like the right. fundamental disagreement I think of right. the polarization. I, I told now you is that they, it's not my vision of it, right? Maybe they, not. Well, let me let me finish this really quick. Sure. It's, it's yeah. not just that they have different visions of like what where America should go. It's that they don't even agree on fundamentally like what the country is or like what it represents or like what and, and then what it should be. Right. What what logically comes next? Right. They don't even agree on the is, so they can't even get to the ought. Is maybe yes. how I'll put that. Oh no, that's that's a no. I mean, I think that's well. Okay, let uh, let me ask this question: Is that actually a good thing? Because if, if in the past we saw no. that people fell for this hook, line, and sinker, well, my thought is it's, yeah, I guess maybe I it's guess a it's good, not, yeah, it's that the dialectic it, has to sharpen the contradictions and that has to be worked out, basically. Yes, it's, it's people, I guess, even I'm not going to say people have become smarter or more aware. I'll say that there's definitely something to modern thought processes and the way technologies opened our mind to. Uh, you know, the majesties and horror of the, uh, the world that uh, it's affected modern people's thinking enough that, you know, when, but even then it's like, I, then I think, and I was like, no, you know what, like intelligent people have always been hated. Intelligent people have always been cast in suspicion and doubt, right? Because it's like, I mean, well, witchcraft are you pulling on? Yeah, right. Which exactly. We, uh, okay. Let me ask you this. Cause it seems like you study, you, you either read, uh, read or, um, studied or whatever it may be for whether it was for fun or for study uh you know if you ever read a uh, bram stoker's um dracula i have not but i have seen the film by uh god was it scorsese or coppola i think it was coppola with gary oldman and keanu reeves <laughs> but i okay, haven't yeah. read the book <laughs> so that's how cultured <laughs> i am oh no no i i love it um no, i saw i saw that one too um Keanu Reeves plays Keanu Reeves. <laughs> he does. But man, the first like 30, 40 minutes where they're at Dracula's castle, like all the stuff they do with like weird lighting and shadows and like, um, it's legitimately creepy. It's actually one of the creepiest scenes of like in a vampire movie. Because most oh, vampire yeah. movies I don't think are that scary. Well, it's a reflection and it's a good reflection of the book because, uh, the book it, well it's just it, it's 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 very striking and i guess uh is an allegory because horror is always an allegory of some sorts and i'm not the first one to make that observation it's been noted before uh you have a few different stories and it speaks to a certain sensitivity and fear in mankind and it says a lot of our uh, psychology and if, for anyone who's actually interested i would always recommend a lovecraft's essay supernatural horror and literature because yes. it's a very right it's just it, it read it almost reads like a, it could be one of nietzsche's science paper at least you know certain sex segments of it where he i think oh, he yeah. actually uh nails the understanding of the, phys, the the religious impulse and physiology and certain things like that uh where i yeah, think it's, it's like incredibly like it's 
I oh, he wrote it in the nineteen what nineteen twenty or something like it was a long like time that. ago too. But it's like Lovecraft's foray into philosophy, in my view, because it yeah, is it was like, incredible. It's on me- a method of how to write supernatural horror, but it is like you say. I think it begins with him saying that basically the oldest, yeah, it's oldest one of his most feeling famous, right? in mankind is horror, um, and the deepest fear, or, or the oldest feeling is fear, and the deepest fear is fear of the unknown, and that's the premise of all horror. And it's like wow that's really cool as a blueprint for writing horror stories but it's also a great insight into mankind and it yes. does feel very nietzsche and nietzsche is definitely i think he was more concerned with fear explaining things like fear in like the dawn actually which to bring back to that that was where he he said uh in h.a homo he said that's where he began his campaign against morality and uh, but what he really means by that is like by by, by looking through all the moral judgments about ourselves and our like instincts and feelings, maybe he could get like sort of a deeper insight into human nature by demoralizing it. And that's like really what he's doing is it's proto-psychological. Right. And he dug into himself first and foremost. So it's like he's offering himself up. I hear, uh, how about this? Uh, do, you, do you remember the one, um, those petty truths? Those petty truths. I that's, the, this is, yeah, the... Do you really think, or how stingy, this is where he says, how stingy you are with your blood, talking about blood sacrifice. Like, what are you actually doing to get it, get at it here? Because it actually, there is no, there is no free or easy ride here, right? It's like you either follow someone else's method and ideas or you seek it. And then that came to be his understanding. Oh, the truth is dangerous. Hmm. Yeah, well, so so how stingy you are with your blood, talking about blood sacrifice. That oh, yeah. reminds me of the, the, the there's like an aphorism in Beyond Good and Evil where he says that basically the, the proof of the decline in, in the power of the, the Christian belief was that the Christians no longer burn us. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so good. And, uh, <laughs> um, but it's it's, no, it's the, like, the yeah, irony's like, not what? lost on me man i like if you you couldn't have lived like okay tell me about just tell me about your uh as plato would call it was it a promiscuous art i think maybe uh tell me about destroyer of light oh, gotcha. <laughs> uh, we did totally would have had to throw you in the lake oh yeah for sure you um, know not even that, that long ago no yeah even, i sure. mean and even right and look dude, ah, dude or, or obviously be- we know still right now well, uh, hmm. yeah, I guess in certain parts of the world, that's true, um, right. still to a degree. Um, well, I, and then everything else you're saying, now, now you're really in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, yeah. But, it, but I mean, relating that to the, the being stingy with our blood, it's like um, maybe this took kind of pull on, on something. I forget which one of them. They're, they're basically all the same, like something one of the new atheists said um, that, you know, um, <laughs> that the danger of religion is that it gets people to not only want to die for their beliefs, but also to kill for them. Oh yes. Um, This is, it's My dad calls it trance. Trance. Interesting. Yeah. That's what he, and actually spooky enough because he, he's, he's, uh, he's long student of philosophy and art. uh, And, um, and he was a soldier. So he has very interesting, like he, and I, I, I owe, like I, I owe a lot to him in terms of he had his hand in shaping me. And, you know, and in that, I recognize not just the importance of a father, but also culture um, and, oh, and also strength, you know. Um, Does he have any, like, so has he, he's seen, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. I don't know if you, how much you want to go into this, but sure. when um, his calling it like trance, um, 
I'm assuming he's speaking from experience and as a soldier that he's, this is a phenomenon he's named that he's actually observed. Like, oh, okay, sure. Uh, he's told me stories and also um, it's in uh, Colonel Hackworth's book about face and, and, may, and also steal my soldier's heart. Uh, he talks, you know, Hackworth talks about the Vietnam War and the, the most striking thing about uh, Hackworth's observations uh, coming from the end of World War II to Korea to Vietnam, right? Because that was his uh, tour of duty. And I bring him up for an important reason, because what you see there is that had the Russians made a move in the advent of, uh, you know, the Cold War, that are the actual methods and um, systems and ideas they came up with to fight the Russians, especially on, on, on ground, they, it would have been an utter, utter disaster. Had Russia actually done anything like the, the, I can't remember what the formations were called, like not pentatonic, but you know, something in that direction. Uh, they just, they, it was, it was an utter shit show you could say. Mm -hmm. So it's a spooky thing to look back on world history and American history, uh, you know, from, from this man's firsthand experience. And it's just like, okay, that was just, you know, there, there, there were some lucky calls in there um, or lucky or chance, or I don't know. And, or maybe, and then I don't, and, and these days I don't, I generally don't even think about that. It's like, I, I tend to think of it more like, no, it's maybe, maybe it's more like the weather pattern. Like if, if I, if I liken human consciousness to a weather pattern of, uh, especially when earlier when we were talking about mass movements and movements of people, period, that there's something to that of when certain conditions are met, these forces will always arise, you know, um, mm -hmm. or it's like, you know, uh, environments or even a, or a hot enough fire that creates its own tornado and lightning, things like that. Like they're, they're so within, you say, but like, I guess, oh, yeah, going we're gonna back to, the, to the religious Trance, yes. So, so Hackward talks about, trance. right. So, so, so you have a bunch of soldiers who are utterly naked and they're willing to fight in a nothing in, in, in a jungle full of biting, stinging insects and in a jungle full of homemade booby traps and a jungle full of enemy soldiers and C4 and landmines. And, uh, you know, all these things that can be dropped at any minute, you know, you got people who are willing to fight for their cause naked with an AK. Right. That's dedication. And, right, right, you know, right, to the, right. and, and to them, it's like you they're actually on home soil. So it's harder to actually call that trance, because to me, it just seems logical. Like if there was a Chinese tank on the corner, right. well, I imagine I Americans would do something about it. The, the neuron that was firing for me was in it was actually a lot of stuff I talked about in the last episode sure. about the, the leading notion of consciousness uh, or, or the leading string of consciousness as notions coming from the unconscious. And so it, going back to something you said, like if these mass movements or political movements or political or religious ideologies are, what would you say? Basically, like if they're caused by world historical forces or sociological forces, or if they, these right. are sort of seem like to be weather, cyclical. weather patterns, it's almost like, so you have these unconscious processes, like structural what would you say, just like structural processes that go on in societies yes. that then produce these conditions that lead people to behave a certain way. And then you have this like conscious, um, like rationalization is, see, I, I'm always trying to remind myself of how I'm speaking at, from like a very modern Western materialist perspective. Sure. So maybe well, to put it in, a, in, in, in more magical terms is probably <laughs> closer to actually closer to the connotation of like being in a trance that basically you're put, you're put into this sort of um, it's like your yeah. mind. Basically, Orwell would call it, say the language in language is key in that. Right. 
mm-hmm. that if you if you set the language, if you set the vision, if you're the one shaping their minds, you tell them what to think. You get them right, right? like back to the ready-made phrases, back to propaganda, back to all these other things. Um, oh, and the scariest thing in that politics in the, the English language, uh, well, not actually in that, in the um, <laughs> it's in the afterword on of 1984 on Newspeak, where he is basically talking about how, um, you know, yeah, there's some people who can still read and speak English, but the new generation's being trained all in Newspeak eventually, other than a few classics that'll be contained for like national pride. Um, most won't just won't be translated into Newspeak and people won't know that language anymore and how in Newspeak certain ideas won't be able to even be expressed from like our time. So see that Um, that's a change. Okay. How much of a change is that from past history? This this, this actually winds up being a very important question because if there's this notion of uh, an eternal return or recurrence here uh, to Mm -hmm. some sort of uh, sociological, political, organizational mean, Right. As necessitated over, you know, going from a tribe where uh, uh, one leader was sufficient or a council was sufficient or multiple tribes, multiple. Right. How, how, how humans have long organized to the modern day of, well, they wandered around and then they eventually codified a story behind who and what they were and they drew their boundaries. Right. Like that's the setting of the Apollinean boundary, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have your concerns with purity therein. And then. You know, it's happened before in the past. It's, you know, and this is like Nietzsche observed all this like 120 years ago. He's like, you know, it's an old story. The founding of a nation is an old story. He's like, how will it, how will it uh, make men content inhabitants of the cosmos? The artist, what the artist, the artistic angle of like really organizing a human polity, what it really is, is imposing a new linguistic conscious net of, or new net of consciousness, um, basically, because that's what language is the sort of way that we relate our consciousness to one another. Yes. And, and you know, do you know what it's like to think in terms of music? I bet you do. Oh, um, hmm. To think like, is, is it, well, look, isn't, isn't music another language that when you're seeing and hearing and so inspired, uh, you know, isn't that its own? So, well, we kind of talked about this before we started recording, because I was saying how I've, I've written a book that uh, involves this question of being in, you know, being both an artist and a philosopher, in my case, a musician, and tra- sort of reconciling this too. But basically, I would say music is a form, it's like all the arts are, it, it gets a little tricky when you get into like the language arts, right? Because obviously, then you have a, a blending of, of both. But I think um, linguistic communication and artistic communication, they're both communication, but I don't know, I don't know if I would agree that music is a language. Now, it gets, again, weird not, because, not, no, okay, yeah, because no, when you not put a music theory, maybe refl- it is kind maybe of a language because it's, it's based on mathematics. And right. so math- that's what I, I was thinking. I was partially thinking that, you know, scales and right. all that stuff. But I was also thinking... Um, that's almost like a technical language, though, when you think about well, it. Well, maybe, like a, but I was thinking the way it affects us because if I tell you a really sad story... And you're receptive to it and open to it enough. It, it chances are it might affect you, uh, dip, right? Depending on how close it is to you or how good of a storyteller I am. And then if I play you a piece of music and you're receptive to it and you're sensitive sensitive enough to even hear it, then you're opening yourself to this immediate experience of, I guess you know, in thinking in terms of how Nietzsche phrased it, which I think is right. Uh, 
I think he said something like music comes like immediately from the other side of the veil. Mm-hmm. Is that how he worded it? And then I want to say this is his later work too. This wasn't even, I want to say it wasn't earlier Nietzsche. Um, I think that's from Twilight of Idols, but I'm not exactly certain, but it's, he, he always had this, um, this, uh, what would you say? this importance that he attributed to music that might be inexplicable if you're only familiar with like, if you were to just like teach somebody about things like the eternal recurrence and master and slave morality and the Ubermensch and all these things, they might not um, be able to predict from all those, the like almost centrality of music and (laughs) Nietzsche's thought. And part of that's just because he's a musician. Like, um, oh, you you see, I, I, I saw like, even even originally, I saw and heard it from the beginning, his earlier works, even when I was younger, because you recognize it when you see it, like, it's almost like saying, like, I think of Heraclitus talking about the logos, right? Like, at its utmost, it has certain markers, and it produces a certain rhythm. And I think what a lot, like, you see it in petty con men who don't realize what makes them special. Hmm. And that's that they've mastered a certain element of the language. And I guess I could we could phrase it in terms of like, well, if you if you bang on a keyboard long enough, you might write Shakespeare. You mm-hmm. know, you might you you will you will eventually reach that point in your. Or if you bang on another off. kind of keyboard, you might write. Uh, you know, um, uh, what would be a good one? Uh, that spoke there. Moonlight Israel? Sonata. Oh no, I meant like uh, a, a musical keyboard. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you might, well, you might write no, I was I, I was actually thinking no the uh, the song by Nietzsche. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was actually, yeah, no, that's, that's, uh, and, and then the book too, because again, how, uh, I, I, I was, was German really ever known for its poetry and its, um, uh, its right? Its I mean, language? you have, you have Goethe, but, um, I think Nietzsche is probably, yeah, he's, he's really underrated as a poet and as a lyrical sort of writer. Um, well, he was, he's master he, artist there, right? Um, for sure. But wait, so kind of relating this to what we were talking about, though, I mean, I guess, so were you kind of inquiring after, like, there's this role of, um, well, I guess we were saying thinking musically as, as a, a hmm. it's okay. Okay. Check it out. This is, this is a good way. Getting excited here. Um, if I bring it to uh, go, we'll go all the way back to Plato and even before him, even uh, let's go with Socrates, right? Uh, what's the exact line of, um, you know, supposedly he's in jail and he can't write poetry and his, de- his daemon tells him, you know, write, write poetry. Or compose, compose music, I believe. Compose. Okay. Even more. Yeah. Even, is that like, is there, is that accounted for? Is that just a story that's told? What, what is that? I think that's in um, like the apology or you, or you can find it in, um, there's yeah, a, a lot of stuff was added and taken away uh, over the years. So there's a penguin book called uh, "The Last Days of Socrates," where you can find that story. I, I okay. think, but um, and yeah, Nietzsche writes that uh, he practiced the lyre, which is an Apollinean instrument that he basically he he can he's like okay, I'll do music, but he does it in the most Apollinean possible way, um, oh, which is that is telling. Right. It's like he's he he's dragged kicking and screaming by the command of a deity <laughs> um, into having to be like a, just a tad bit artistic at the end of his life and how it just seems contradictory and wrong. And that Nietzsche himself um, 
wanted to be an artistic Socrates or that I think, Oh, it's that's apparent. my read on him. And that, Oh, absolutely. It's right. he, he, he was distinguishing himself. He was, I think he, I think he did it in a few different ways because he was saying like, part of it is, okay, here's one way to frame it. If you go back to the, have you ever counted how many words of Christ are actually on record? No, but I've seen a red letter Bible. I want to say it's a few thousand, it's a few thousand words Mm -hmm. in terms of a philosophy to base your civilization around. It doesn't really give you much to go off of. And I know they formed the church as an answer to that. And they kind of, you know, they, they put it together post hoc as they went along and Nietzsche explains that process. Right. I think it's back to, uh, is that, uh, he talks about a little in genealogy. Yeah. I'd say it's in genealogy and what beyond or, uh, antichrist where he, like, where, where is the oh, one where yeah. he kind of systematically goes through the myth saying, okay, a myth needs this. So you got the unconscious manifestation of the woman, and then you throw on a revelation story, you know, and you got the whole package, you know, it's just, it was so, right. it, it made it seem so. Uh... Yeah. I just remember like he, he in genealogy kind of goes through the psychology of a lot of the early church fathers. And I oh, think yeah. his Especially emphasis Paul. on the, on the early church fathers is really, on Paul and also I believe he's talking about um is it Eusebius or no it's um his name will come to me or if you've read genealogy you'll know I'm talking about basically the early church father who says that the he can't it's it's Nietzsche's criticism is like he obviously can't really imagine what the pleasures of heaven will be so he says he's kind of grasping for straws and he's like well uh oh and one thing in heaven is that you'll get to look eternally at the suffering of the damned in hell so that'll be pretty cool um and (laughs) like uh but basically you know how like you were saying the the words of jesus are not it's not that much um, well he didn't live that civilization on and so that there's this yeah if you look to him as being maybe the most influential um or, or like as explanatory of the direction of that Western civilization took, you're probably going to be a little confused. But then when you look at, <laughs> you look at like the centuries of work done after him, it, then you see the story um, and you right. realize that the, the Christ story is like, um, it's, it. how would you put it? The version that we're getting has been colored by these like now millennia of other people's psychological projections onto it. Yeah. And, and all the polish and all this other stuff when it's like, Oh, it's actually a very different story. Um, mm. You know, it's like uh, back to my vision of what's happening here. It's almost like the conservatives represent the Romans and the, the liberals and those on the left are the new Christians and they're trying to expel their Roman forefathers. Mm. Yeah, that's there's been a characterization of the left as or progressivism as a form of like hyper Christianity. Oh, they call um, the, they call it a secular religion these days, but it's a call it what it is. It's Christian. You know what? If I say mm. the first, the last shall be first, and the weak shall inherit the earth, it's like, well, right. what are they saying? It's pity uh, taken to being the highest value to the point where. If you if you were to keep in the supernatural elements and the like salvific elements in in like a literal sense salvific of you have this literal soul that exists, um, but that's all supernatural claims and that now we're in a secular age that's actually a drag on the the religion. So if you look at a religion like um, the way you know if the religion is the organism and its ideas are within it are the genes similar to how we're organism but we have genes and the genes are really the thing that is getting passed on. It's like the values of pity, and that would be the central one. But um, 
you know, there's obviously yeah. others associated with it. It's like shedding, Whoa. it's shedding these other parts of the organism that are not adapted to the current like net of consciousness and becoming something yeah. different. That's like, yeah. and that's why it's sort of like hyper Christian because it's about, it's. Is it, like, is that, is that, a, it's almost like that's the necessary, like it's, it almost looks like a necessarily demoralizing kind of push. Like if I can say of uh, anything of politics in this country, the last few years, it's clearly been demoralizing to people, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it yeah. seems like it's kind of in that area, but here's, okay, look, look, and look how, look how naturally and how headlessly these things construct and manifest themselves because they even have a revelation. It's, it's climate change, right? Like that already That's got added into the story. Yeah. It, 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 that one, that one just shunted right in. It's like, Hey, from the, what's the word, the, the, the scientific wealth and schwunk. I, I don't know how to, uh, it, you know, yeah. like it's like out of that came this and. Um, mm -hmm. But wait, so how can we. With the political the, modern the, political philosophy. Yeah. So going back to the role of music, though, with Socrates and sure. Jesus, um, or well, we, still haven't, I, we haven't addressed trance yet, but we'll get back to that too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but kind of. But so going back to that, though, um, I don't know. Would you say that? Would you say that then Jesus is like? How would you put it? Well, he's very. You... He was very Socratic, right? Because if the notion was Socrates wanted to get wanted to be done with music, art, and philosophy once and for all. He wanted, it's like he wanted to question it to its logical core. And I guess put that in a box and it's a tendency that we've seen it. Like, can you, can we say that he's responsible for that to a certain degree? Because by the time we exist thousands of years later to critique or question, it's like, well, we're already, he already won. He's already shaped our minds. Well, Plato, he's already, so I, I guess what it really is though, well, this, okay, maybe this is actually hmm, a contrast I would see between the Socratic view and the modern view, because I think in actuality, because so the Socratic or Platonic view is basically like art. Ultimately, they they end up on the view that art is dangerous. Yes. Um, because it is. Oh, and both his theories, they're. He talks about it in Ion. He compares it to, he says there's a magnetic stone in this one temple of Artemis or in the, the temple of Artemis, I think, or a set of magnetic stones that basically attract and repel each other. He doesn't really know what magnetism, how it works. He just says these rocks, like they're, they're connected by an invisible chain is what he says. And they compel and move each other as though by some sort of invisible link between them. And he's like, that is the way it is with the muse and the poet. And then the poet transmits his internal emotional state to the rhapsode, who's the performer of the poetry. And then the performer transmits it to the whole crowd. Right. And so then that's why he says, like, if you have uh, poetry or art that makes people sad and lacrimose and um, nihilistic, you, that should be banned because it's right. just going to go it's around dangerous. making everyone sad, like unproductive nihilists. It'll ruin your society. And so I almost wonder if he's not wrong. Well, there, degree, that's, de I mean, that's definitely true, but, but it's like, we don't, for all the things that people say now about art, well, they'll talk about, oh, art is so powerful. Oh, but they, but they yeah. don't really believe that because if they really thought, I mean, you, something you really think is powerful would be like a gun and that people who take the danger of that seriously want that to be banned, right? And so it's like, but if you think art, if you take art's power seriously, it's like, that's what can 
like uh, well, going back to the propaganda sure. we were talking about earlier. No, that's very very good. No, it's a very good um, point. Uh, it's almost it's it's a very good point, and it's almost uh it's it's a fuck because I'll say this. I think it's a funny blind spot in us. You know what I mean? Like you'll hear people or. I guess it's, you know, because the modern conceptions of art, that's, again, I guess that's just it. It's modern. It used to be, uh, if I, I, again, if I go back to Plato, you know, and I think Nietzsche actually demonstrates, like he, he illustrates this. I want to say it's in Genealogy of Morals, but, you know, the notion that art imitates physical things. This is actually, again, this is reminiscent of, I guess you would say that Apollinean or strict, rigid mindset within Zen to the degree that, they're actually trying to get you out of that to a certain point, but the aspiration towards it requires a dedicated method that you are not allowed to touch. You know, the whole relevance of Dogen was that he was the one to question the layman's discipline and the layman's meditation. And, you know, you know, and if, and if there could be people already laughing because right away you should know that he was lambasted by the other Zen masters going, are you kidding me? Like, you know, if you look at how they live, how austere it is, and what's required for that process and that value system of how they shape human consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, no, there's only one way to do it. And it's, it, it's rigid and it's hard and it's painful and there's no easy way to do it. So the layman's meditation doesn't count. And it's almost, it t- actually ties into even Nietzsche criticizing, uh, you know, the, or calling a married philosopher, uh, a comedian. Cause the notion is, well, you have not actually, we, you know, we can't take you seriously because this isn't your sole dedication or you haven't made the requisite sacrifices, let's say back to uh, right. well, the and blood goes, and the pain. It goes into what he was talking about with, um, or how Nietzsche opposed the sort of German consumption of alcohol, but he also is, um, you know, enraptured with Greek culture where they have these Dionysian rituals where they get oh, yes. completely, uh, they're conscious. It's the point is <laughs> to get so drunk that your consciousness is annihilated. Speaking of trance, this is, this right. is closer to trance, right? That's, um, that's actually back to that. Right. Thing. Well, but it's like that occurs within this ritual context. Like you're allowed, you're, you're yeah, you have trip, trip guides, right? Encouraged uh, to like eliminate the ego, but to do it only within this like set of rules and boundaries. And I think, so one of the terms, um, so Zen obviously comes from Chan, which comes right. from Jhana, which that's an Indian term that means meditative absorption. But I right. think just absorption like is really, I think conveys the right connotation of this is you, your ego being absorbed into something. Um, or it's, it's a dissolutionist activity basically to, um, just try and try and like step out of the power of your conscious thought, so to speak. And so right. it makes sense that in all these traditions, you know, it's like closely guarded by these religious institutions who want people to do it within their course right. of. Well, back progress. to the danger, right? Back to the danger of if you leave it to the people all willy nilly, well, look what happens. Uh, mm-hmm. You see that again, it's like you see that most people are in over their heads. They're in they're trying to create art that they themselves are incapable of creating. They cannot master or put forth a vision themselves or one that would be actually, oh, you would well, say a benefit. I mean, to go back to Zen, I think a lot of the, the insanity, um, and there is a lot of insanity, especially in the online Zen community, literally. I'm talking about like literal mental oh, illness. Um, that you people, mean people getting all wrapped up in their own egoistic conception of Zen? Or? Oh, I mean like people who are like, Oh, I 
this becomes the most important thing in, my, in their life is like, I have to escape samsara. And then that becomes a source of anxiety oh. for them and drives them nuts. Well, it's but ironic they, for someone who came to see that the gods and karma aren't real. Yet he followed, like it's, it was the need of the Apollinian because if you come to see, he, dude, he, he's a Plato, right? The Buddha was very much a Plato in the sense that he came to see that if the gods aren't real and karma isn't real, like that's not a teaching I can give the people. That's not, you can't build, like you can't build a spiritual kingdom around that and you can't build a real kingdom around that. So what do you tell him? He's like, okay, no, follow these rules. And he called any straight up calls at the middle path. Right. And that would be between the extremity of the, because you could say like to a certain degree, maybe the seeker's suffering is his art. You know, he's creating something of himself and it's an old, it's an old notion. That's why I think there's always been until very recently, um, there was a very well-known distinction between like the religion of the lay person and the religion of the priestly caste. And that, and like what we call like spirituality was like the reserve of the priestly caste, like actually having going and having these religious insights and spiritual connection to the universe and having religious experiences, like that wasn't really the the average person's connection. Nope, it was not. It was um, it was all safeguarded by the. It was for the longest time. It was very safeguarded by the priests, uh, even within Christianity and within most traditions. Well, it's so only it was, modern. I guess it's like the interpretation of modern art where people like you, you, you spoke to it a little bit, but I, I, you, you were going in a different direction. But when people start to say things like art is powerful and art is expression and communicate, a lot of the times when they do say things like that, they speak of it as if it only came to exist in the last hundred years or something. You know what I mean? It's almost like that very narrow take on it. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, you're speaking of modern art and the way people use and frame and uh, repeat and manufacture modern art. Right. Yeah. Well, and I was just going to say it like, so it, it relates to that, but with the, on a lot of people, I think having, getting into these unhealthy, like relationships with like meditation, for example, Oh, sure. it's because that was originally not for people living in a life full of like all these no, distractions yeah. and like desires and stuff that like, 400 BC, you know, they, they were dealing with tigers in the jungle. They're like, there are a lot more right. tigers to deal with a lot more biting, stinging insects. <laughs> You know, it's just, it's incompetent to actually place yourself, to see that and uh, to be able to see like it needs well, even did. in that, it, that's it was obvious the, he did. He saw a lot of that stuff in his mind's eye. It's why he could see other completely other societies and cultures, value systems in a way previously. It seems to me, did he see things in a way in, in uh, like in at least definitely uh, definitively in a few fields, it's clear that he saw things in a way that had never been seen before. You're talking about Siddhartha. Or at least at least expressed. Yeah, a little bit. He, he definitely gets into some of it with Buddhism and then especially even Western philosophy, because if I go like if we follow that thought process of Jesus only left 6000 words, Plato didn't leave any word or Socrates didn't leave any words. Technically, Plato wrote them down. Right. Things like that. If we think about that, it's like, well, how hard did Nietzsche have to work? He set a new standard. He's like, OK, I'm a musician. And a, and a philosopher and a poet. And you know what I mean? Like he, he took it in this, you know, completely different. Uh, a philologist, a scientist. As oh, well. yeah. Oh, yeah. Also historian. It's the unit that wants to create a gay science. psychologist. It's the uni- yes. unity of, um, of this joyful or like emotional artistic life with a scientific inquiry, life of inquiry. It was the opposite of Socrates, because rather than trying to wrap life up in a tiny little bow and say, like, right, rather than trying to condense it into 
you know, a very narrow Apollinean vision or notion or line of thought or inquiry or, you know, some supreme notion like logic and virtue. I see Nietzsche more like, again, he's, he's closer to that puffer fish creating or that blowfish making that mandala in the sand. Like it was like this expansive art. He, uh, Nietzsche actually there, he says that um, like truly creative people, um, they give forth creative works, just like the fruiting of a, a tree, fruit falling off a tree, basically. Yeah. And I that if so. you have to strain That's yourself right. to make art, then it's not for you to do. Um, if it's like this, this, this uh, s- source of like self-torture for you, which is funny because a lot of artists See, is that now Socrates in prison? That. That's okay. Check it out. When maybe how telling is it that it wasn't until until Socrates is That's in prison true. I didn't think that about he that. hears neither, neither neither well neither have I. So right. it's not until he's in prison, faced with his own existence, that then Socrates goes, "Shit, I should have been a musician." I don't know. Right. <laughs> you know like, well, and even then, though, it's like, is music really for him? Because it's yes. like, it seems like he has to be forced, and he's sort of like, "Okay, I'll." But okay, this but this I'll gets do this into... very intellectual form of art that I'm. <laughs> no, okay. just so I could say I tried it. It's kind of how I interpret. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, no, for 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 sure. I think there's some of that. It, it's definitely more like to. It would be unfair to great minds to ever put them in any kind of tiny box, right? Uh, especially when, again, that if, 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 so- if Socrates was his own devil back when and Nietzsche was a real antichrist, you know, uh, for the modern era, you know, it's just like there's a lot to that. Um, my question is, um, so I think it's in Genealogy of Morals where he expre- maybe it's where Nietzsche expresses the idea most directly that for other artists, you know, they follow through in... Um, in whatever their medium is. And then new artists show us like, oh, you can use this as a medium or they show us something that hasn't been expressed before or something maybe we haven't seen. But Nietzsche says of the philosopher something, you know, I think it's one of his biggest insights into philosophy, psychology, religion is that uh, the philosopher is actually the shaper of men. That's his art, that's his medium. So a guy like Plato sees and understands this. He expresses it when he says, art imitates life. These, these imitations of life are dangerous and they take you further away. It's like Zen and words. Words take you further away. Shut up and meditate. You know, we're not even going to recite sutras. We're not even going to do any of that. This is, we're going to strictly meditate. Uh, and it's almost like Socrates willingly clapping himself in prison because you're, you're not allowing yourself, you, you, you're uh, ref, uh, imposing very strict limitations onto the medium. Um, you know, in this case, it's the human mind. Well, I think, but oh, okay, wait, 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 let, me, let me finish okay, this thought. Okay, okay, okay. Because this is the last thing. Because I want to say there's a part where Nietzsche illustrates and he mentions like the philosopher, you know, he, he sees the artist and the artist is actually beneath him. The artist is the one painting the vision that, this, that and I guess you can see this par- partially in the Renaissance or in a lot of places where people either push back or kind of put their own hand into art that was sanctioned by others or when they push it too far or maybe it's even the same thing inevitably by the time a French artist installs a urinal you know, and calls it art. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe, maybe it's the same expression at that point. But that to the philosopher, the artist is below him because he's the one who says, you're just painting my vision. I'm the one who actually came up with it. Socrates, by the time we're using his method to, by the time Nietzsche is using his method to further reverse engineer, yeah, that's how I, I guess that's how I kind of look at it and look at it when it uh, came to Nietzsche's philosophy and understanding of the world that you know, because he had a lot, he had access to a lot of brilliant thinkers, obviously, right? And he had access to a lot of new stuff that was, uh, that had come out, out of um, the East. 
you know, more recent translations of uh, Eastern philosophy and the like, and even Schopen, right, Schopenhauer before him. Yeah. Um, so I, what what came to mind when you were talking earlier about the thinkers sort of seeing the artists as beneath them is the um, passage in Human All to Human, which I think is in book two, um, and it's a passage called Gethsemane, um, and it says that the the worst, um, or what does he say, like the worst thing that a, a thinker can demand of the artist is what, can you not stay and watch with me one hour? And that's a reference to when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane, he's asking the apostles like stay and, and basically stay and keep watch with me, like stay up with me in the garden right. while we wait for the, I mean, it's basically like this is, he's using Jesus as the, as the thinker there um, that in that analogy of, of um, if Jesus is the thinker um, and the apostles are the artists, right. Of saying, cause so what happens is, Jesus, obviously, if you don't know the story, much most people probably do. He knows in right. the Garden of Gethsemane that night, the Romans are coming. They're going to take me and crucify me. Yeah. Um, so the most horrible people possible thing. Socrates to make it happen too. Right. But it's like, so, but in the analogy that Nietzsche uses, which is just packed in that one little sentence uh, or that one little illusion is mm -hmm. to basically say, it's like the thinker knows the most horrific thing is coming for me. So it's basically the knowledge of mortality. <laughs> right. And the you, apostles, see, you see the biggest predator of all. Right. And so he's, and so in the story, Jesus goes to the apostles like th three or four times. And he keeps saying in between that, that's where he has his, his conversations with God, where he, it's like the really famous line where he says, if it be your will, I'll, I'll let this happen. But if, if, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Like, I don't want it. Um, and, but in between that, he keeps going back to the apostles and says, Hey, can you stay up and keep watch with me? Uh, and they keep saying, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they keep falling back asleep. Um, and so it's basically Jesus sent or Nietzsche yeah, it's saying, all horrible. <laughs> That's all tragic. Right. And, but it's like, Jesus is saying like the artist wants to keep, go back, keep dreaming. Like the thinker is, right. is, is, is saying like, Hey, come, wake up from this artistic dream and confront the horrific truth of me and the artist is the impulse that actually like one of the things Nietzsche says is like uh, poetry lays a metric gauze upon reality right and, and the that poets the, are always good at comforting themselves right and that the artist is always emphasizing bringing things into the foreground and other things go into the background that Art right. is always a sort of oh that reminds me of politics too at this point you know what I mean it's like hey sure. look, hey look I got a I, you know, I got, I got, I got politics, some, religion, some and art all you. come from the same source. Yes, yeah, like basically, exactly. This is when I guess in its in its proper context, this is Nietzsche saying, "Long live the noble aristocracy." Cool. Yeah. Right. And it's in its right, yeah. like you say, in its proportionate measures. Uh, and he gave and I want to say right, he gave examples of, um, you know, the political thinker, the artistic thinker, and the. Specific, and I mean specifically within bringing highlights to these domains of thought themselves, right? Like he spells it out. I want to say in some aphorism somewhere, it's eluding me well, at the moment. There's also the, the untimely meditations where he compares Goethe, Rousseau, oh, yeah. and Schopenhauer. So it's like the, yes, the, the three types of philosophers, the political. Okay, maybe the, actually no, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Actually, I think yeah, yeah that's what it. it huh. It hit for me was like um, no that might that might be yeah that might be it it's uh, it's in it I think it's a very despite it being older Nietzsche right uh, it, I still think like there's plenty of things from both that essay and that whole essay series that 
still Dude, had old, old Nietzsche is good man i love early nietzsche like oh absolutely tra- it's incredible trash about early nietzsche it's still um, incredible it's still yeah. it's still it's still so far above and beyond and you also see i guess you you can see some things that were carried forward m- most distinctly and then you can also see other things that were kind of left behind but it shows you a lot and i think experimenting uh, yeah um, and let me ask you this, because this, this is a question I, I, w- I wanted to ask a while ago uh, related to a lot of this. And I think it was more like mass pathological movements and politics and that sort of thing. You know, when Nietzsche talks and it's re- referencing directly something you said, I can't remember it at the moment, but Nietzsche says in Schopenhauer's educator that, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like you could say that even like it's in the ecclesiastical tradition to say, don't even talk about such things if you're not actually concerned with the painful truth. You know, because he talks about people like you. He's he's like, you always hear old. This is an Ecclesiastes, right? So it's a long ass time ago. Uh, He says, there's always been people like old people who lament, oh, the youth, oh, the times changing. But don't even bring this up unless you're serious. And Nietzsche questions to to take it seriously. Nietzsche questions, you know, is modern man losing, you know, with the industrial revolutions and all these bigger changing things uh, in philosophy and mindset too, in art. Uh, He questions, are we actually losing our ability to think philosophically and religiously? Mm. And he recognizes the religion that, you know, to the degree that, you know, Nietzsche is an atheist and all these other things. It's like, it doesn't matter how you want to couch these things, the expression of it there, the mirror of it is always the political over the religious and the artistic and the feeling of it is fundamentally always the same. And the feeling of it is an animal's physiology to look upon his kingdom. Like let's say a Marcus Aurelius and be like, yes, it's good. You know, the, the lower and upper teeth, they work together. And it's like, well, yeah, you, you know, you're one of the last remembered good Kings of Rome and uh, you know, a proud stoic and you, you know, right. like you have quite but the record, he, but you created the conditions that. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, exactly. It's like, he was in a position to look upon it and say, it's good. And to feel that way. And then you can look to history and say how many rulers and Kings ever felt that way. And you see that uh, a lot of them, either put on quite a show or they didn't feel that way or they saw it as tragic from the beginning. Mm. Well, yeah, well, and kind of going, hmm, I guess it's, it's, if there are these um, continuing sort of sociological or structural forces that are driving this and that the, the post hoc result is this, um, you know, when a state is founded, as we've already said, this new sort of conscious linguistic net of consciousness is created, which you could call that like culture or, sure, um, but it involves language, involves all these things. And that you you have this like natural progression um, that happened, that has happened before and is happening right. again now. And so this idea, okay, like what we were talking about earlier with the polarization and what I called it was like the, like two different pathologies um, manifesting themselves on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of like what their like their um, conceptual linguistic net has been corrupted basically by this but it's like you see that pattern over and over again in the course of empires um, where um, oh in the last minute oh here wait trance speaking of which check it out it was a last ditch effort from some of the tribes here uh, of the natives here in america and the united states was that one of their last Dichette's efforts was, um, uh, I, I don't have the story or the information ahead of me, uh, so I don't wanna get the things wrong, but the fundamental premise was, is the last ditch push against 
you know, the expanding uh, westward expansion, let's say, um, the Indians came to came to have a new shot. You know, I can't remember which which tribe and how many, you know, because a lot, you know, what you see in their history is that, uh, and it's also the history of this country is that, you know, you had smaller tribes and larger tribes, and they'd sometimes band together for larger war efforts and, right. or, you know, communal efforts. And, you know, it's, you know, because all this stuff is complex. They had, uh, you know, it's funny because the Europeans came over here and I don't, modern people don't understand the way, even though, because they tend to just go, oh, it was racist, wrong, it's genocidal. It's like, no, you don't understand the way these people, they believed in the Christian vision. They a lot of them did at least to where by the time they see these other people, the culture shock of seeing what could easily be said to be some aspect of themselves, thought, you know, at a different point in their own evolution, they couldn't understand it so much so that to, on one side, they'd be like, oh, these are savage warriors on the other side when they saw the Indians who actually farmed because not all not all uh, not all the natives farmed, um, you know, they're not Indians because then, you know, the notion was that they thought this was going to be India. Uh, and so they called them Indians and that's right. That was a mistake. Um, but you know, that that's actually a very important distinction to go look at the Gulf and values and look at the Gulf and culture that it was just, it was utter, utter culture. Well, there, there was always like a weird, um, so Robert Persig actually talks the guy who wrote Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance in his second book, Leela, there's like a, a theme throughout the book about how Americans came to see themselves in the native americans or or like they the idea he basically his evidence for it is that the idealized version of like the cowboy from the western is basically like the indian brave transposed into western society and that there were all these things that um you know you could see that they understood on some level that these people are humanity but they still were genocidal against them and i think i've never heard that explanation before but i think you're you're so right that they well, basically it ha- but it's themselves- I think it's Christian pity too. It was part of his Christian pity because Christian pity and I know I you you I think you you talked about this and you might have said it in these words or maybe in so many words or at least related. To, I remember hearing it somewhere in there, uh, listening to your podcast. But it's like pity is actually okay. Like it's it, like it, it's okay that you destroy the body with pity so long as your pity is to redeem the spirit and you can see this reflection in islam like when 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 they like something like an uh, a terrorist attack within the confines of uh, islamic i guess you know to call it extremism seems weird because it's like no i think you know to those people that's just their thing like they're not they're not terrorists in their mind and they see our cult, like they see our cultures, things we don't want. But I'm, you know, and I'm not. I don't say they this to say anything evil. goes. They're, yeah, and I don't say this to say. Fight evil in their view. Yeah, and I, yeah, and the, the pity goes. We can fly an airplane into. We're we're we're, we're shedding their husks almost. Like like they're going to go to Allah. Allah judges them anyway. It's not for us. So we're just speeding up the process, and that's okay because it's predicated on uh, the certain this this very twisted form of pity. Well, it's, a Cal- in the Abrahamic it's, it's fundamentally religions. like what we would call in the Christian tradition, a Calvinist religion. And that ultimately, well, it's less prevalent in the old ones. It's more prevalent in Christianity, obviously. Well, because but the old- I mean, Islam seems in my view, I mean, I could be wrong about this, sure. but from my reading of the Quran, like really, I think the very first thing that's said in the Quran is that ultimately Allah's will is what, like whether somebody comes to believe in Allah or not, is up to Allah. Oh, and- right. And so that, that there's this Whoa, understanding shit. that when you deliver, when there's like this thing of, you know, inshallah, if God wills it, you know, like right. if you deliver your whole, um, what would you call it? 
like you just get rid of all of your worry about the future of your own life and existence and just say it's in God's hands. There's like an immense power to that. Oh, and it, well, it leaves it open for so much interpretation too. And then history begins to make sense, you know? Um, But that's to relate it to the native Americans. That's the manifest destiny thing. Oh, right, right, right. It's, we think it's our destiny to basically, that's what the the view that eventually comes out is eventually it's our destiny to conquer this land. And I think that is coming from an area like, you know, help carry them forward for sure. Right. Like it can help them. Right. But then, then in the process, like, well, if all these people have to die, I guess that's God's will. Um, But um, yeah, I think that was ultimately like where there was a disdain for the native Americans or like where it was seen as how you, you, you see the tendency though. Like, do you ever see the, do you hear the stories about those Mormon preachers who are like, here, we're going to go, uh, we're going to do a little ritual to baptize all the all the Jews who died in the Holocaust. Yeah. Like you see, there's this, there's this pernicious tendency well, they in have religious people to go around and consecrating the world. Thing. <laughs> like that, it's well, not just them. Like they, they'll, they'll how are they going to get the collab? They'll post mortem baptize like all sorts of people, and they people will ask them to stop. But they ultimately believe like this is just to your good. Like why? <laughs> well, I guess look, it's a little less destructive than. Um, ter- you know, any kind of, cause like, okay, here's a funny thing. Cause I think very few thinkers and people talk about this sort of stuff, but when it comes to both terrorist attacks and, and also I'd say nihilistic attacks, which you see, which I do think are a real phenomenon in the modern like day. Co- with, Columbine. Yeah. And what I see those things as it's people in terms of a larger cosmic order or a human story and most of it being post hoc, but I see it as it's primarily, it seems to be primarily unconscious, right? A manifestation of an unconscious will to power, I suppose, or one that's been channeled by someone else's vision fundamentally, right? Uh, in a lot of cases, maybe not in the nihilist one. Maybe the issue is that it's like back to Nietzsche of if the will doesn't have a direction, it'll destroy itself before it wills nothing, um, which also seems to bear out in history and other things uh, that, and maybe that in the will to power that a will of an individual or even a whole nation might not recognize that their will to power is actually destruction, but they can't see it because they're so caught up in that trance or that artistic vision. Uh, bringing it back to the ghost shirts real quick. One of the last ditch modern, uh, you know, modern hundreds of years ago, right? Uh, not, not even hundreds, right? It's more recent than that. I think a lot of people don't even realize how recent uh, kind of the end of that era was, uh, but the ghost shirts, it's like one of the one of the emergent beliefs that because it hadn't existed because it never needed to exist within the natives uh, belief structures was that, you know, if they follow these shamans who run these rituals, they're going to give you these ghost shirts that make you impervious to bullets, because how else are you going to conquer these invaders? Right. How else are you going to get rid of them? They got superior technology. And then it's a you know, it's kind of gun, a little bit of gun germs and steel theory of history. Right. Like we're back to chance plays a large part too, like uh, the illness, uh, the illness wiping a lot of them out. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, no, that's definitely um, that the guns, germs and steel um, book definitely like uh, opened my eyes to like a different way of looking at history. Um, Oh, it's it's definitely important. Oh, trade too, trade too, right? Um, I think, I think we underestimate how much people enjoy both fucking and trading and that's been a big part of history too well especially when you see uh like you know how many people these days are but you know so multiracial biracial and i don't say you know there's a there's you within america there's a big fuss and stink about all this stuff but to me it's like look pete like 
people are people to right like for as far as a civilization a government's concerned people are people the government exists to protect the people like at the bare minimum a system shouldn't hinder itself right it shouldn't kneecap itself like a philosopher has to be i think nietzsche makes here's an important distinction that nietzsche makes that i think could have easily been happily forgotten by all the revolutionary types is he says at the end of the day a philosopher has to be he says in his own words, I think this is me kind of, uh, but I think at the end of the day, a philosopher has to be in favor of civilization, thus a state, thus boundaries, thus a certain element of the Apollinean, right? It doesn't have to be so rigid that it destroys or strangles itself. Ideally, it's not, right? But any that for any modern system to work, it has to almost make room for itself to grow. Mm -hmm. And without that consideration, it seems like history has thus been for it to just hit the same kind of, I don't know if it's well, think critical it, mass or breaking points or carrying capacities, or maybe it's a mix of rising complexity and people not being intelligent or adapted enough to make those adaptations. I don't, you know, you could frame it in a lot of different ways, let's say. Well, I think uh, like, I don't know, I think we're kind of what you said there, that's interesting to me that uh, I think the it, it's like the issue of synthesizing again um, our rational truth-seeking tendency, which has to exist within this Apollinean boundary. Um, yes. And this, what would you call it? The primordial pain and contradiction. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. It's, it's old, right? It's an right. old, it's actually old. It's just we didn't but see it's like it his, recently. I his, think his earliest conception of it, which is actually kind of a, like you would call it kind of a vulgar or a coarse representation is Apollo and Dionysus. But I think as he went on, that element is always kind of there. Yes. Of, oh, of absolutely. The, the reconciliation of, I don't know, this, the, the contradiction. He, he, the he made it, he made it more sophisticated without even, cause I think, you know, what in his later works, he pretty much stops using the words period. He only, he, he uses Dionysus. He, he said he references it a few points here and there, but it's right. not like, Dionysus he's not, kind of turns he's not a, a systems thinker. He's not a systems thinker. And he's not one of these being counter types who falls in love with his own jargon. He's like, what is like, what does Nietzsche care for jargon? Cause he's got poetry to write. He's got art to make. Right. You know, everyone else loves new, their jargon. He has new metaphors to use, which will be yes, even cooler. New creations yeah rather than letting them lose their power and become a system yeah, yeah for, exactly. and i guess that's forever pushing the envelope and it's like well if in a certain element the hu humanity has whether we if socrates is wrong insofar as he wanted to put a stop to it because you see that there's no stop to this will this natural will mm -hmm. it exists regard like even if we had never existed with a certain consciousness to name it, it then I guess from a certain perspective, we could theorize it would have existed blind in nature in the sense that nature hadn't come to see itself in any larger capacity. If this isn't even, you know, because what am I doing other than project in most of my thought, it's hard to get away from this primordial notion of animism that I'm forever projecting myself out leaping like a tiger like Nietzsche might say to animate or lay a sense into a thing or to dismantle mm -hmm. something and take it apart and put it back together or you know and you see it like you could say it's present in songwriting it's present in mechanics it's present in engineering it's present everywhere it's 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 a very fundamental element to seeing and understanding this world and it's like you know I guess we don't like we we haven't even begun to talk about speaking of bodily wisdom how important our thumbs are in this let's say <laughs> right we wouldn't yeah. even be here without our thumbs i don't think right. right like 
the dolphins may have a very complex communication system and we might not be able to ever understand it on a fundamental level, but their, their, their limitations of flippers, you know, but you know, if they can have a happy equilibrium, but at the same time, you could also say, well, we've acidified the ocean quite a bit and maybe they won't even be able to live there for that long. So the dolphins ain't so smart, are they? Cause right. they haven't thumb, figured out our, how to evolve onto our opposable thumbs and uh, you know, the mechanical Ability. Like you imagine if like a, a, if a zebra had gained human level intelligence, what are they going to do oh, yeah. to acidify the ocean the way that we could? Well, see, um, and, then they, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then this, well, this is where I really start to look at evolution, like in terms of like what modern man could say is like, and I, I, I wrote it. I don't, I don't like saying things that I've written just because it's like, that's actually exists to be written, but it's a fun enough concept. It's like, it's this notion of like, here we are all evolved and we're just exactly are we trying to go. Like, where are we going? What's the real vision? What's the real story? Because as far as I can tell, that's actually never been created. It was, it right. never needed in the past. It never needed to be created. Well, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense once you, like we had those, but it's almost like, they yes. were, like the we artistic were vision they, they was were within enough. like a national project or they were within this like religious comprehend. They were within yes. these dreams that then once you break out of them, that's a good way of putting it then you're like tr- surveying all these dreams but a dream within a dream yeah and you're like how do i make up make sense of this like when you really understand oh it's the it's my it's mind evolutionary really processes driving that you're like oh all those dreams those were just like a emergent property of the fact that your genes want to reproduce themselves so that you can create more you know powerful descendants it's like that it, that is monstrous like it's a horrible thing to actually think about <laughs> back, okay we're um, back to the truth is uh it's hard back to you. love we're back to lovecraft oh kinda, yeah yeah you know you know um, do you know uh you know his, uh his, i think it was a poem right uh nemesis yeah i have seen yeah, the dark one. universe rolling where the black planets roll without aim how they roll in their horror unheeded without knowledge or luster or name um, yeah, that's that's it. That's that's in that to me, that's if there's like a post Nietzschean horrific understanding of truth, it's like that's what he nailed and expressed in both his art and his philosophy. I uh, love yeah, that is right. kind of gives me it's his relevance. Too. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like you get you, there's certain places in it where it just you, it, it definitely and I guess a lot of that back to physiology and feeling it's like, well, isn't this why we uh, in terms of religion, that very capacity to feel both that awe and that horror and modern uh, modern pessimists like thomas Ligotti, he says like you know our evolution of physiology was thus uh you know lovecraft talks about it too and i guess even a guy like stephen king uh in his book dance Maccabi gets it a little bit of it that like the way we kind of evolved to it's like almost like we evolved to bow down we really mm-hmm. did you know and you see like have you ever seen a group of chimps at play let's say and then one of them will act out violently or cruelly or what, what appears to be for no rhyme or reason. Like sometimes you might see a chimp will just lash out, grab another one and right. like twist its hair. And then you look at that and you go, okay, well, here it is existing in them. And then I think of it every time it manifests in us, you know, right. you can see it from a parent to their child or uh, from a priest to their person. On a society level, like in the incarceration yes. state, which we know. Or- so that's the thing. People have... Like uh, Foucault made this point in Discipline and Punish of how we basically went from a very formalistic, open displays of power to hiding that because the cruelty with started to make us uncomfortable. 
Oh, on a mass um, scale, what's it look like? It's, it looks very, I guess, I guess that's what a lot of people in America, let's say, especially where we have the largest prison system in the world. This is what it seems like people, their morale, like their morality and their value system. It seems to me like it's not strong enough to actually handle the reality that um, emerged or the, right. you know what I mean? Uh, however you want to term it, it doesn't really Yeah. Matter. And I go back and forth on it too, because there are like public displays of cruelty it's just it's become more well sublimated oh so, so, sophisticated sophisticated, sublimated for sure well. yeah yeah that, um, that reminds me of the, the the essence of the struggle always sense, comes right? with a moral uh element that washes it clean too oh it had um, and, and 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 that's the dionysian understanding and that's a socratic understanding that it has to because otherwise is it that you're leaving too much impurities? Is that, or you're, you're, well, no. you're, you're, maybe inviting... to bring it back to the first thing we talked about. It's because we're not the chimps forget, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, no, it's a post hoc. It, yeah. it, it will, it, it's, it's that, that, it's that, that, that we, we, we have, we have to deal with these things like self conception and like moral coherency and all of this uh, junk that an animal doesn't have to deal with. Oh. And so there, I think there, it's, because I guess that's what it is, right? Is that we're saying being that requires, open to feeling, being open to beauty. If we see it as that, um, it requires that art, artistic or ideological or moral net for you to go and engage yes. in random cruelty. But that's only because we only require that ugly, because right? we're conscious to something that just lives unhistorically, like a you know a hippopotamus. They don't need this moral net when they gore another male hippopotamus. Oh, those things are dangerous. Those those are impressive animals. Right. But it's like, they're just living on impulse, but we need this. um, We, once you evolve like self-consciousness and you get things like, um, I mean, you know, Nietzsche would say in genealogy, it comes from the slave morality, but once you get a sense of pity and all that, you're, you're, once you start to, Uh oh, you're doomed. No, (laughs) a little bit, right? Right. You need that. Um, you need that dream to like justify, um, whatever act of violence or whatever. And like I said, it's usually not even that, like the most cruelty I see now is just social media or or, or not the most, but like just your sort of garden variety, like you know, whereas maybe our ancestors a couple hundred years ago, the garden variety cruelty was actually just like killing other yeah. tribes of people. Now it's... Um, and then the notion of the scapegoat and then how it evolved over time, right? Of having right. scapegoats and rituals to kind of, or even even symbols, right? Like the evil eye. Uh, mm. So some way to contain the damaging surplus of consciousness in an artistic representation. Yeah, the evil eye is a perfect example of that, right? Because yeah, this, and I suppose this the, the the I mean to the degree that some places did practice an actual kind of scapegoat of uh, you know because I think I think some aspects like it, it's been applied well, it comes or from seen the, the Bible right yeah and I and, and I don't I don't and, and in some cases I want to say like there's examples of this where it's more myth mythologized or fictionized because again like even thinking of the difference of let's say how many labors did uh, Heracles have was it ten or twelve and it's like it depends on who you ask right right. The Greeks had ten. I think it was the Romans who had twelve, and that was was that uh, was that not Virgil, but uh, or was it? I can't remember. I, I was automatically going to think twelve. I think I think we're coming up on two hours, so we should probably put a cork in it. I will say, just as a random thought, uh, before I'll I'll give you like a some final thoughts here, but um, just sure. this doesn't really relate to anything that we're talking about. But just a funny bit of trivia related to Heracles. Um, the the image of Heracles and the Nemean lions uh, like skin because mm-hmm. you know that became so synonymous with with Heracles 
um, that it was like, oh, that's how you know it's Heracles. He's wearing a lion skin to the point where even in depictions of Heracles killing the Nemean lion, there are some in the later era. <laughs> he's already he's wearing, wearing the lion skin. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Um, well, it's funny because I got Well, funny. Check this out. I had him in, um, in my own mind's eye. Cause I'll say this about Plato, like uh, just cause it relates earlier. And I, I meant to bring it up earlier. Like when Plato says he sees the world in terms of forms, to me, I, it makes perfect sense. It's like, of course he does because he's an artist without an art. And so the most, the best he can conceive of is a perfect form that you can't see. I almost see a, a, a parallel in even the, more, the Mormon religion with the notion of look at these golden plates I found, but you can't see them and only I can read them. You know, and then Plato, uh, Plato trying to subjugate the art to philosophy and to a different cultural standard while also saying art is dangerous is representative of that notion. Um, but oh, and then but bringing it around to Harry, I, I thought of him earlier in the conversation when you brought up, I think it was a, oh, a certain notion of meritocracy because Heracles is an interesting story because the whole, like even the Nemean lion, like, or was it the boar when he brings the boar back? And his, you know, basically the story is his boss is an idiot and his technically his stepmom's trying to kill him or destroy him. You know, it depends how, yes. how, what analytic lang, uh, lens right, you right, want right, to put right. to what this mythos is. And then it's a question of, well, the stepmom is mad at him, you know, because she would, does she not have the power to hold Zeus to account for his philandering ways? And then as this half breed of both common garbage man and God, you know, is it that the noble aristocracy actually has to make room for that kind of growth in mankind? Uh, is there any of that reflected in that story or is that too much of a modern read? Because I do think it's, it's, it's otherwise an incredible mythology, you know? Well, it's like Nietzsche uh, says where he says, yeah, I've surveyed, and there were like Zarathustra says, he says, I've surveyed the highest man and I've surveyed the lowest and I found them both human, all too human. Oh yes, and Heracles, and there's Heracles, right? He's half right. god, and he's half, and he sees that this king who was also, um, it was wait, wait, that wasn't his brother, right? Who was what was Heracles' brother again? It slipped me. Um, moment. I don't remember either. Because Hera wanted him to rule in the first place, and then you got the whole. This is account. a great example of how forgetting is the yeah right, the and fundamental it's, it's force. Like, <laughs> and, <laughs> it makes but it makes sense. Like, why would you have to remember when you already have a story that? provides you with maybe right. the framework you need uh and only now we've become so sophisticated that you know uh people become mystery to themselves or um it really mm. it, it really does seem like absent something to it, hold you up from within oh really well, i was gonna say i feel like it's, it almost without. is like the fact that we are able to record so much of our lives now that we are more, even more mysterious to ourselves because now you can see maybe it's too much maybe how inconsistent you are I oh, feel sure. like, you know, a lot of people, um, but yeah. All right. Well, Mina, it's been awesome talking to you. Um, yeah. Likewise. Thank, no, thank you, you for tell, having For sure. Uh, this will be the first of, um, it's going to be in the same stream. Obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, it's on the same feed. Um, but um, yeah, maybe once every two weeks or so uh, we'll have uh, somebody on, um, you know, or just, I look, I, look, to, I look forward to listening. Yeah. <laughs> and definitely we should do this again. Um, oh, yeah, why, I'd love to. Why don't you tell everyone uh, where they can find uh, more of your work? Okay, I have a website, uh, bezabezar.com. That's B E Z A B E Z A R.com. That's it. Cool. Alrighty. And definitely check out, uh, you were just on the uh, Into the Absurd podcast. 
right? Yes. I get yet again. Uh, you've had a lot of appearances there, but that was another recent uh, talk. You yeah, we're doing a series on Emerson. So I guess we're going to follow through on that. And then I don't know if he wants to <laughs> take awesome. a break up from that, some of the heavier stuff, but yeah. Cool. Uh, thanks and again, that, man. Uh, next week, I'll be getting into fr uh, free will on the Nisha Oh, yeah, that's, that's going to be good. Oh, I'm stoked. All right. Thanks, man. Hey, likewise.